0: For me learning is very much about perhaps knowing where to look um, uh, what to look for uh, to help uh, to help us continually find our way and then associated with that i guess skill becomes very much a process of, of being able to not necessarily perform um, movements devised prior to or things devised prior to it becomes very much a process of being able to uh, adapt one's behavior to these unfolding, or, or I guess dynamic, changing surrounds. Um, so, from that point of view, from 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 my worldview at least, learning is very much a process of of becoming more attentive, um, and, and progressively more sensitive to things that perhaps others others uh, less familiar with these surrounds can't pick up. And, and skill then becomes very much more uh, about being able to adapt to these ongoing uh, changes to to solve various problems.
1: Welcome to the Dynamics Coaching River Tiger podcast. These podcasts are about all things equestrian, especially learning and developing skills with both horses and riders.
0: All right. Well, I'm my name's Carl Woods. Uh, I'm a senior research fellow at the Institute for Health and Sport um, in Melbourne at Victoria University. Um, I have been in this position for the last few years um, prior to which I was working in professional sport in Australian football in in, uh, like a coaching science innovations type role Um, prior to which I was an an academic um, at James Cook University in North Queensland and prior to which um, I, uh, I completed my PhD in skill acquisition at Edith Cowan University in Western Australia so I've kind of Followed the the uh, the research as it's gone, and, and my interests as, as as it's gone, and um, uh, it's led me to to yeah to where I am now. And, and these days I spend much of my time researching uh, concepts like skill and education, um, learning and knowing, but probably less about the application of these things, and and, and perhaps more about. Um, maybe more a philosophical argument behind what some of these things could actually mean um, and how perhaps paying a little closer attention to the meanings of these things um, could uh, could inadvertently shape um, their their application in practice.
1: Great. Thank you. And thank you so much for agreeing to, to come and, and uh, have this conversation with me. I'm, I'm really pleased. Um, I'm listening to that, obviously, Um you know, I've I we've had conversations before, usually um, with other people, and and certainly read a lot of your work, um, which which I love and, and has been very influential. <laughs> uh, I I'm just listening to that and I'm thinking actually maybe a good place to start because we are going to talk a little bit about things like cues and affordances, and 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 we're going to talk about some of these things as where, where I'm grappling to uh, apply them to. A relationship and becoming skillful with an, with animals, particularly with a horse. Um, mm-hmm. But I thought a good place might be to start is um, what what is skill and what is learning. If you're happy to, uh, yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, I I like to look um, uh, uh, maybe more so. I'll, I'll start start perhaps with with learning. I like to look at learning not necessarily uh, through a lens of. Um, uh, acquiring content or information that I can then kind of store and then roll out when certain contexts are right. I, I kind of look at learning as as, as this progressive um, and constantly changing or evolving relationship with with our surrounds, and that to me is very much rooted in this notion of of, of paying attention to things and paying attention to things that perhaps others. Uh, that are less familiar with those surrounds, mightn't pay attention to, they mightn't be picking these things up. Um, So in sport, it might be seeing things that perhaps a teammate doesn't necessarily see who might be slightly lesser skilled than I am. Um, Now that that links back to me to this notion that it doesn't mean that um, as someone who's perhaps more skilled, doesn't necessarily mean that I know more than other people it just means that perhaps I know better I'm able to look towards the things um, that are able to consistently help me inform my behavior and for my actions as they're unfolding in um, in certain game situations so for me learning is very much about perhaps knowing where to look um, uh, what to look for uh, to help uh, to help us continually find our way and then associated with that I guess skill becomes very much a process of, of being able to not necessarily perform um, movements devised prior to or things devised prior to. It becomes very much a process of being able to uh, adapt one's behaviour to these unfolding or, or, I guess, dynamic changing surrounds. Um, so from that point of view, from, from, from my worldview at least, Learning is very much a process of of becoming more attentive, um, progressively more sensitive to things that perhaps others others, uh, less familiar with these surrounds can't pick up. And and skill then becomes very much more uh, about being able to adapt to these ongoing uh, changes to to solve various problems that perhaps open up more problems that that keeps carrying on as as, as we go. Why I like those kinds of um, worldviews or um, ways of framing learning and skill is that they're non-ending. It just they, they carry on. I can always uh, establish a closer fit or relationship with my surrounds. I can always pay closer attention, and I can always adapt to to various things that emerge to continually find ways of of, of carrying on. So it's not a matter of reading a book and all of a sudden um, I'm educated about all these concepts. There's nothing more to know. It's very much about progressively learning to pay further attention to things that interest me as I go.
1: Thank you. I absolutely love that. I, and the other thing is, those um, they work just as much for a horse. You haven't taken um, away yep. from, from other organisms learning and becoming skillful within their environments. And I guess, yeah. um, listening to you there, I was thinking, actually, one of the things that's really um, important within our relationship with horses, I mean, domestic horses are already in a different ecosystem than wild horses would have been. Um, and they you know, they will learn and adapt and become skillful in those environments, even while they're young. And a big part of, I guess, some of that is we are ed- trying to educate their attention and intentions towards some of the stuff towards not being um, as highly reactive,
2: mm.
1: To threat because they're prey animals, um, mm. and so their instinct is to. So that's the kind of probably one of the things that 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 people struggle with a little bit. We don't want them to react to, you know, you see the cartoons and it's always you know the horse watching, I don't know, a, you know, a horror film and it's a plastic bag, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> floating.
0: <laughs> um, that is that, that, that's very true. That's very important to emphasise that. these these perspectives on skill and and, and learning are really non-anthropocentric. They're non-humanly focused, non-humanly centralised. And that ties back to the notion that what we see, um, perhaps you and I, as human animals versus a horse, what a horse is, is very different because that's clearly entangled in the action capabilities of those creatures then even, even at a species level, even still what you and I see is quite different based upon our action capabilities, what we can, how we can take up with the world. Um, and I think that's, a, that's an integral part of these types of approaches in that um, they, they help us explain um, these types of phenomena, behaviour in the world, not just from a human-centric perspective, um, but very much uh, from how all creatures um, uh take up with with the world, how they learn to do things, how they learn to become, how they learn to be. Um it's it's uh it's it's a, a much more um relational way of of understanding these concepts of skill and um and learning which in your your area clearly in, in more equestrian sports is is really important I think for 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 people to grasp because it 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 kind of drastically changes or drastically implicates how we would go about the educative process i guess for for lack of a better way of saying it or or maybe the the pedagogical approaches that we could use to to help um or guide along this process of becoming um uh, slightly more sensitive to things in our surrounds. so learning to pay attention to things that uh, that perhaps we wouldn't necessarily learn to pay attention to
1: yeah and i i I think there's a couple of bits that I'm going to pull on there and we might come back to it. So one of them is at the moment, it's still a very linear pedagogy in equestrian sports. They're still like, this is what your horse should be doing at one year, two year um, competitions based on that, which I think are very problematic. Um, we'll yeah. park that for a minute though. <laughs> um, the 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 other bit I think that's um, that, that, that I'd like to pick up on is in terms of that learning in our relationship, I think, as well, some of, the, some of that linear pedagogy, and just like it has in all sports, it's exactly the same, has led to this idea that when we're, when we're educating a horse, it's very much, it's the human is telling the horse exactly what it should be doing,
2: mm.
1: how it should be behaving, how it should be responding, and um, rather rather than doing more listening. Yeah. Um, I think that's that's definitely a, a big thing, and more sort of collaborating and meeting the horse or attempting to meet the horse a little bit more in their world, which is hard. Um, yeah. When I read some of the old texts and I think back to my Catholic upbringing <laughs> in school, <laughs> the, um, I, I you know like one of the things that I r- was really shocked at was how explicitly in those it talks about animals being made for humans and so I think that somewhere historically there's this concept still lingers a little bit and and we're emerging out of that view of the world really aren't we and I think this is a big thing with social license that equestrian you know sports are grappling with that it's not and horses have evolved to be horses not to be you know some machines for humans
0: I think that's a that touches on a really profound um, and, and important part. I think for um, for society as as we move in these really complex, um, really challenging times with really uh, complex societal issues, um, and I, I think that attacks even concepts like sustainability. For example, like we we tend to look, I think. Um, and now this might be viewed a little bit pessimistically, but I think we look at concepts like sustainability as something that um, we need to create a world that can um, uh, uh, perpetuate renewables for us, for people, for humans, right? So it's a very, still a very human-focused, human-centric um, uh, 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 world. So we, we look at the environment then um, in a way more as a, as a resource to be exploited, to benefit us now, that has some really um, like really deep seated issues that that people would, would really feel uncomfortable with, and, and I think that demands a bit of a, a shift in our view of these things like um, like sustainability. What if perhaps we instead of viewing sustainability as this notion of reaching towards a humanly focused like circular steady state, towards more of one of becoming progressively becoming response able to all creatures, such that we're able to find ways to carry on together. And I think if we changed our perspective of what sustainability might mean, we would inadvertently be compelled to be drawn more into being response-able to each other. Now, that means me casting my experience forward to you about various things undergone in life, and as you... Um, and and casting them forward in a responsible way such that then you can cast yours forward and join with those experiences such that we can open up paths that we can both travel together. Now, that's because our experiences are richly varied there's diversity there and that diversity is really important to keeping open possibilities for both of us now in our perspective it's really easy because we can verbally communicate with one another we are you know animals from the same species so we take up with parts of the world and societal conventions in a really similar way right despite obviously sociocultural um, socio-cultural differences and age differences and all these things But that concept for me still absolutely applies for non-human animals as well. I can absolutely enter into a conversation um, and become responsible to a horse in the same way I can become responsible to a plant in my house or to a wave that I'm surfing. I can become responsible to these things if I'm attentive to what they're showing me and on the flip side, perhaps what I'm showing them. And a bit of this comes back to this notion. I, I really love it from um, primatologist Shirley Strum in the 90s, I reckon. She um, spent a lot of her time um, with apes and wanting to learn more uh, about, about apes. One of the things that she struggled with early days was she couldn't overcome this like human pervasiveness of thinking these Um, creatures are doing these things from a human centric perspective right so these behaviors that, that she's observing she's trying to anchor them to human behaviors or human actions so one of the things she really really pushed hard towards doing is trying to forget everything she thought she knew about apes and let them show her what was important to them Now, that is her, in a way, becoming responsible to what the apes could show her so that in a way she could join in conversation with them and therefore find ways together, concurrently, to carry this relationship on. To me, that that is as applicable to anything we go through life with, you know, think of it in terms of a um, coach of uh, children um, think about it in a relationship with your partner think it about it in a relationship with with a with a, um, a dog or a cat these are things that we enter into all the time we become sensitive and responsive to things that we care about um, which inadvertently encourages us to keep open opportunities for us both to to thrive. So to link that back to your point about this notion that horses are a tool for human use, I think is embroiled in this notion of like the environment is to be exploited to further us. Well what if we just forgot that completely and and didn't bother even trying to justify that and instead thought about trying to be genuinely responsible with all creatures and the experiences of all creatures we encounter along the way, such that in that, in that uh, responsivity, in that conjoining of experiences, or uh, what Heather Menzies refers to as commoning, in that aspiration to find in common with others, we can currently hold open opportunities for us both to, to carry on. And for me, that's at least the view of, of kind of sustainability and entering into, um, for lack of a better way of saying it, entering into these kind of multi-species entanglements that is a lot more comfortable. I'm a lot more comfortable with that because it's it's less, or well, it's not human uh, um, human centric, um, but at the same time, it doesn't expel people away as thinking like, oh well, we have to preserve this particular part of the environment, so people, humans aren't allowed to walk in that particular area or uh, go through that particular. It keeps us as an integral part of that environment and broader ecosystem but just not hierarchical to it, not above it, such that we're exploiting it to further us, such that we're, we're, we're looking to find ways for us all, for, these, for all creatures that we enter into this responsible relationship with to, uh, to, to carry on. Now, there's obviously a bit that I've thrown at you in there, but hopefully the point being, the key point being, I think a lot of this stems from how we actually understand what sustainability is, and maybe we need to view it less as a, as a commodified place for renewables, and more about as just a continuing, ongoing responsibility to things that we care about, and the experiences of those that we care about that we go through life with.
1: I, I absolutely agree, and um, thank you um, so much. I mean, I, 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 it almost makes me feel quite cold when I, you know, reads about, you know, this needs to be, you know separated from people because Mm -hmm. that needs protecting and it's like we we need to get to the stage where we you know if we if we're not part we are animals if we're not part of the natural world we're never going to understand it we're never going to protect it but it's going to be so alien to us and i think like you say we need to keep that together and more so i think the problem is too many people have become too disconnected from the natural world already Um, yeah I, I, am trying to weave where we, where we, hit, where we, where we go next, actually. And I think I, I do want to come on to some of the, the, you know, sort of learning and, and, and training of horses. And I think, I think maybe the next place to go the one route to that is um, the, the big challenge, I think um, for people to, to um, maybe overcome to move forward is if you if you're always conditioned to doubling down on control, with the horse and, and having them live in an, in a way that's it's almost like a prison really, isn't it? It's very regimented. They don't have, I mean, it's, that's changing. So many more horses, even competition horses now have got much more natural environments. People are really looking after their, and thinking about what their needs are. But I think they, they it goes from the certainty. And I see the same in coaching. You know, when coaches move away from a more IP, technical template, just tell them what to do towards um, you know, more ecological approach and more learning together and more guiding and um, they're, they're like, well, I don't know what to do anymore because like I decide what happens then I error correct, you know, which and you think back that's a terrible experience for for whatever whichever organism is on the receiving end of it and that and that level of uncertainty and and you know and the kickback I'd usually get is well you know they're dangerous animals, and it's like yeah. well, they're actually less dangerous when they have some autonomy, <laughs> you know, they're way more, they're way more chilled out when, when you're with them. But I think crossing that line for people is quite difficult. And, and I think here is where I grapple a little bit with some of the, um, the, the more pure behaviorist view of the way in which we would train a horse and the way a horse learns. And I, I guess that that's a horse learning to pick up the information from mm. us around in, our intentions and intentionality. And, yeah. and we're turning that into a gray area deliberately because the horse needs, like you say, to it needs to not be hierarchical anymore. We need to bring them along. They need to be able to have self-determination. Um. Yeah. So that's that's yeah. where I'm trying to weave next. Hat you know, like, and how do we help people go? Okay. Yeah. We're going to give these cues, and the horse is going to know. But they can still say no. So we need to think yeah. about that as we move forwards.
0: Yeah, I think it, uh, it's a really challenging task because a big part of that has to come towards this appreciation of uh, and comfortability in uncertainty. You know, and and that's a really that's a really challenging thing for, for lots of people in in sport in everyday life it's it's a really uncomfortable thing why because we live most of us live in a society that is or that perpetuates this notion of um you know speed production um uh, accurate decisions as being what captures or what denotes expertise you know, like it's that like you, 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 we, we live in a society where it's like the expert. Oh, you could ask them anything, and they'll just roll it off like perfect. And oh, this person's super smart. Ask them about anything, and they'll be able to tell you um, a, a, about them. In my experience, at least, um, some of the most um, what we would, I guess, what we would refer to as like some some of the most expert performers I've encountered in all parts of life, not just in sport, but in Um, uh, in farming and tracking in um, uh, um, uh, allied health professions in all these various walks of life expertise resides in in a in kind of like this slowness Um, it's not about quickly uh, solving a particular problem such that that problem's not a a worry anymore it's more about embracing a, a bit of Uncertainty associated with these things that we encounter. Why? Because the, these people that know better tend to know better by appreciating that they don't actually know everything in the first place, anyway. Why? Because knowing everything would imply that the world is static and things aren't going to change. But things always change. Contexts are always different. You know, like a, a, a friend of ours um, of yours and mine, Keith David, says context is like is everything in an ecological approach. Um, and why why that's such an important thing to get across is is because it emphasizes the dynamic of the environment, that it's constantly evolving, such that, Um, I I might think I know a particular swell that I surf all the time. I go out on one particular day and the the current is quite different than it was even a couple of hours before or the wind has changed even as it did half an hour before. So the environment is always changing such that I I can't just profess I have this stock of knowledge and all of a sudden I'm going to be able to dominate that particular uh, part part of the environment. Indeed, experts tend to know where to look a little bit more. Um, but they, that, that, that kind of appreciation comes back to knowing where to look even in those moments of uncertainty of trying to figure things out, this appreciation that the environment and, is, and them themselves are, are constantly changing. So I think first and foremost, it comes back to being comfortable with not being in control, I guess, like not, not feeling like, oh, well, I'm the human, I'm controlling, I've got to control this horse, this, this, this creature. I have to impose things upon them so I can be more certain. I'm going to know when they're going to try to throw me off or when they're going to run really fast or when they're going to spook. Um, I think if we try to impose ourselves on these things, firstly, we're at risk of doing damage to ourselves and the creature. Um, but secondly, we actually close ourselves off from what the creatures have to share with us. By embracing this uncertainty and by um, appreciating that, you know, you don't house all the answers, that maybe you're not in control, whatever that subsequently means, forces this like or compels this attentiveness about you. So I, I often talk about it in these terms. When when I go on a trail run, I'm never more attentive than when I feel like I'm slightly lost or I've gone off the trail a little bit. Why? Because I don't feel like I'm in control. I don't really know where I am. So instead of going, oh geez, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm I, I have this overwhelming feeling of uncomfortability and I'm just I, I, I'm stuck. I can't I can't find my way out of these situations. Instead of having that overwhelming feeling of, of loss of control, it's this other sense of attention which starts to come out this sense of waiting on the world and stretching towards things that inadvertently emerge which helps me find my way back or find my way back to the trail which keeps me going um on on my way so i think the minute we give up this desire this incessant desire to control whether that be a horse whether that be um, how someone is to ride a horse. The minute we give up these this 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 um, pervasive sense of control, the minute we open ourselves to new opportunities, new opportunities to get to know the world a little better than before, to, to start to pick up things that that perhaps we were closed off to before because we thought we were certain about them. Um, that's why I guess, from my perspective, knowing. And, and how we go about knowing in the world isn't a, a process of, like, recognition, of, like, looking at things and, and thinking, oh, that's this, that's this, that's this. Knowing is much more ecological. It's how we enter into a relationship with the things that are, are of interest to us and that perhaps of, of those things are we are of interest to them as well. So it's a way of becoming more, more attentive uh, to these things. And to me, the crux of that attentiveness and, and the crux of that responsivity resides in an appreciation of perhaps not knowing or of slight uncertainty it's not to say we go into really um, at risk situations but it's perhaps to appreciate that as a mountaineer um, i might i' I'm, I'm probably not in control i think i'm pretty okay in these in these areas but i'm also aware that Things can change at any minute, so I'm always vigilant towards things that are, are unfolding in my surrounds. I'm not rigidly following the route that's been prescribed by someone else, or that's been sent to a, a smartphone on my uh, sent to a, a smartwatch on my wrist, or that's been laid out in advance by someone else that I'm just passively following. Um, but all of that, as I said before, all of that to me, at least, resides in a comfortable embracement of uncertainty. Uh-
1: yeah and and uh uh-huh. god again there's just loads of things i'd love to to pick up on there and i think one of the one of the biggest things you talk about there is moving away from sort of feeling that you've got a solution to the mm. idea that you can that you that you're solution finding that you are able to be a problem solver rather than an answer knower. if that makes okay. any sense as we yeah. navigate as we navigate all of those relationships and um yeah, I I think um, one of the things that's really important to uh, for me, and I think many other people who ride and like in the mountains is is that feeling of slight uncertainty is what's addictive.
0: Yeah, but, I think so.
1: You know that that that's what people get a real buzz from is just that, and you know, and, and you know the the notion of a, a centaur is so pervasive isn't it being part of a horse being one with another animal having their superpower and that's a really interesting one because we do our action capabilities change dramatically when we're on a horse but again it's 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 that line between being sensitive to the horse and really listening and trying to impose when you go back to saying, you know things are never the same and i think one of the so yesterday um so the day before yesterday, Amy jumped a meter for the first time ever on Dusky. And it's, you know, she's coming back into work as well. I and mean, she's my old competition horse, but she's coming back into work, which is massive for her. Absolutely massive. But yesterday, Dusky said no to like a 90 centimeter jump. Um, and she did do it in the end. So, you know, and, and I said to her, just because she jumped a meter yesterday, doesn't, you know, she's probably tired. You know, that was like a serious leg day and to do it Mm. twice in a row is quite a big deal you know especially at her age we need to be a bit more you know probably a bit more gentle um but she she was like what have I done wrong I'm like nothing you know like you you need to recognize that each just because she did something yesterday does not mean that she can do it today and then that does not mean that it's okay to make her or punish her I mean she never she never would now she's spent far too long with me (laughs) to do that but (laughs) I had that sort of like moment of being like oh what have I done wrong yeah and and it was like it's not and that's a really important thing to pick up especially that you know okay easy stuff she can do every single day but we need to you know she needs to be able to be the one that says yes she's the one who's Mm. jumping you know and that is a big move away from the way an awful lot of um our interactions with horses and um I do think about it as like having children you know you don't I want you know it's really important for me that obviously that that they live functionally within a human society Mm. there are things I need to teach them that they need to know in case something happens to me you know I rarely tie them up but they do tie they you know they Mm. do do all the things happily that they need to in order to get on I think that's so important that they're educated Mm. to be able um, to have a good relationship with people, um,
2: yeah,
1: n- massively important. And I guess that's where and. But likewise, River unties herself. She generally stays where she is. Is just <laughs> she just unties the knot and stands there.
0: I, I think that's a really that that's a a, a critical part too because it, it kind of attacks the very notion of what um, education is. Like the example you're referring to just before. Um, I guess from from that point of view, it's about exposure. It's about exposing ourselves um, to to various situations, not so that we can, um, you know, proclaim to all of a sudden, like, know all there is to know about these situations, but so that we can get ourselves out of position. We can displace our view. And through that displacement, we start to pick up things that perhaps we wouldn't pick up otherwise, you know, and, and, um, in, in that, that example, um, it, it's, it's, it's perfect because um, Amy, I think you said, was, was in a situation where in that particular moment, she was picking up things that perhaps she wouldn't have picked up had she not been in that particular moment before. If, if all of a sudden it was this, like, consistent regurgitation of information, oh, if the horse won't jump, do this, this and this, oh, okay. Instead, uh, by actually exposing oneself to, the, to these, these situations, they can start to learn things that perhaps they, they wouldn't have picked up before, like, oh, maybe maybe I need to be more attentive to when we have a big day the day before because I, 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 the horse might be a bit sore or they might be a bit tired to, to progress on to do a, a bigger day that day. Or maybe maybe they, they acted a little bit different when I approached them in the morning. Maybe something spooked them through the night or maybe they the, the horse themselves just wasn't in a situation or wasn't in a position to be comfortable enough to, to, to do it on that particular day. But again, all of that, a tentativeness which you learn along the way doesn't come about I think from reading a textbook I think it comes about from entering into an intimate relationship with creatures that are of concern to us um, which you don't learn through reading a paper or reading a textbook you learn from directly perceiving it from from interacting or corresponding with it right there in um, in in front of you i often use this example because to me it's really really profound because i'm not much of a cook but you could give me any recipe in the world any any like suppose a you know brilliant recipe done by some expert chef And there is not a chance I will be able to recreate what they do. Why? Because the recipe can't tell me what um, a certain taste is supposed to taste like. It can't tell me what a certain texture is supposed to feel like as I'm mixing it. It can't tell me what a certain smell is supposed to smell like to know when it's quite right, even more or less nuanced than that. The context in which I do it in my kitchen is vastly different from, you know, a world leading restaurant kitchen so that my sensitivity to my apparatus is quite different to another chef's sensitivity to their their apparatus. So following that educative model of here's a textbook, go and learn everything you need to learn about motor control or go and learn everything you need to learn about how to train horses or go and learn everything you need to learn about cooking the perfect roast meal. That's. Is a a model that I think is quite flawed because it removes us, or it, it focuses more on immunisation from from experience as opposed to to encouraging an exposure towards um, towards experience. That's that's why. Um, uh, uh, Jan Michalin, educational philosopher, talks about education as synonymous with going for a walk. Not to reach a destination, but so that you can displace your view. You can pick up things as you go. Think about when you go for a walk. Uh, think about your listeners when they go for a walk. Um, if you you simply go for a, a walk, your view is constantly being displaced, and you're constantly seeing, hearing, feeling, maybe even tasting things that are that that um, you wouldn't have um, necessarily. Seen, heard, tasted, or or felt earlier that day, the day before, a week before, or even in a week's time. Um, And it's because you're you're constantly exposing yourselves or exposing yourself to things um, to help, in a way, you become more attentive to and responsive to things. Now, clearly, as in the case that you provided, it can be really unsettling. You can be really uncomfortable. You can go, well, why didn't they do it? To- what What am I doing wrong? What What's What's something that I I I didn't do? Now that un that un- vulnerability, that that feeling of un- unsettled, like that uncertainty, um, rather than it being looked upon as as a negative thing. Which I think is embroiled in this notion of well, you're the human. You should know. You're more. You're. You're. You're more. You have more power than the horse. You should know why the horse didn't want to jump. And if the horse didn't want to jump, you should make it jump. You're in control of it. I think it's embroiled in in that that sense, um, such that we need to change that perspective, or we need to keep pushing towards that perspective of. Oh, the horse didn't want to jump today. Um, why? Why perhaps not? Let's 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 kind of dwell on dwell in this notion of it, it didn't do this today, and I thought it would. Well, I'm I'm probably wrong. Then the horse isn't wrong for for not jumping. I may have not perceived something that that the horse had shown me, uh, or that I'd been exposed to the day before or earlier that morning, um, such that I need to spend a little bit longer. I guess moving into a more intimate relationship such that i can continually know such that i can take the experiences that i've had in the past with that that horse and i can cast them forward to to help me learn a little little better next time i i want to go out and jump that particular jump with that horse after a bigger day the day before Um, but to me at least it it really uh, it really attacks that fundamental model of education which mainstream i guess has been founded on a model of transmission. Here's all this information, store it, regurgitate it, and you'll be sweet. Um, but again, what if, similar to sustainability, what if we understood, or came to understood education, not as a transmission of information, a following a recipe, but rather as, as one of, it, of an exposure where the recipe is still there, the information can still be there, but I'm not attending to that. I'm attending to what I'm directly preparing. I'm attending to the smells and the tastes and the feels of these things that I'm cooking as opposed to attending to, well, I threw in three teaspoons of sugar. Why isn't it uh, turning into the, the smooth consistency that the recipe says it should be turning into?
1: Yeah. Um, I And that, that's once we do that, we start to um, become attuned to yeah our horses and what they're saying more subtly because they are talking to us all the time but yep. that there is a historical tendency to um to shut them up because we don't want yeah. to listen. we want to tell them what to do um and and that's uh yeah really really nice and 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 uh hard initially for amy when she does things it's very different you know I've I, I mean I've taken the bit out of Dusky's mouth but again only because she's an older horse and Amy's worried about hurting it and because I back them all without one anyway so they don't need them they only wear a bit because it's competition legal although mm-hmm. in jumping it's not anymore which which is great so she's you know she has no crop she doesn't have a whip she doesn't have anything to make make, make her her do things so um, a lot of that is about Little, But like you say, her riding's improved matters. She's having to become much more attuned mm. to the horse because I'm, you know, Dusky loves jumping. We don't have a problem with that. I know she loves jumping. She, we don't, if, if, so it's not about making her. And also, interesting yesterday because she had, she'd swerved, she did a swerve and a stop. And I stopped, but also, you and Dusky need to learn how to stop as well. You mm. need to be able to stay on her if she realizes at the last minute she's not going to make it, she has, for whatever reason, that her action capabilities, you know, mean that she's got to dodge it, which is actually harder than going over. So there's, it's not a lazy decision. <laughs> it is at that high in speed anyway. Um, but you need to be able to stay on it. She needs to be, needs to be skillful in mm. not going over it if that's the decision she has to make. Otherwise, she gets injured swerving. Or she gets, yeah. or, so. So this, this is still something that you need to be able to do, and you will start to pick up. You will start to feel a couple of strides away whether or not she's she's pulling. She's feeling confident to do it. So again, just reframing it as a, an opportunity for her to become more attentive to yeah. other information, but also for her to become more skillful in being able to stay with the horse and and you know listen, represent whatever. Which. Yeah. Um, Again, it's just different from what she's been used to in the past, which is the challenge. Um, yeah. I'm I, again. I, there's just so many threads I can pull on, and um, I, I am going to come up to this this idea of um, training the horses to uh, obey cues, and there's quite a strong behaviorist um, element coming in to. Um, equestrian sports in that the, there's all of this operant acal conditioning and it's really important that we are very clear in our cues so our horses can be obedient. and there's a little bit of me that feels slightly uncomfortable with that because it pushes too far again into control and compliance and we just need to be more effective in our communication. Rather than thinking about it as this is like you say educating a horse to be attentive to information from us around intention mostly without taking away the horse's agency. And mm. um, and I think the other, the other bit of that is that some of that also then starts to move into micromanaging a horse's movement system. And that comes from another, a different place. Again, this sort of old school biomechanics. There's one correct way to do something. So we're constantly correcting a horse, uh, taking away it's agency over its own movement system, you know, which breaks my heart now mm. when I see it. And, and uh, you know, and that idea that most of the time it's doing something wrong because it's not fitting mm. our mental image of this, you know, perfect horse. And this is where we get all tie downs and things like that. So mm. I, I would love to, exp- and again, things that you would recognize from child sport that it's mm. exactly the same. It's exactly the same things, except. Um, there's sort of more physical constraint with a horse, yeah. um, and and so I'd love to explore how you know we sort of um, balance that cues, creating mm. communication, and, and particularly explore affordances. Then, yeah, what around, yeah. What mean.
0: <laughs> yeah, look, I I think a lot of it, um, I think a lot of it comes back to um, maybe. I don't know, maybe the amplification of, of affordances which we think the horse should perceive. So I guess these more behavioural perspectives that are more rooted in what I guess we'd call like a harder pedagogy where, no, the horse has to move right because they have to go through this particular gate or they have to jump over this particular height. Um, indeed, someone someone might, the horse might actually, they, 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 that that harder instruction um whatever it might entail might get the horse to do that right but the horse isn't attending to the affordance because it's of meaning to them the horse is attending to the instruction because it's probably rooted in some like violent perspective you know it's probably rooted in them like being hit or physically being moved or being whipped or whatever it might 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 be to assert that control over them so the person observing might like, uh, go, yeah, all right, this, this strategy is working. The horse is doing what I want them to do, but they're not perceiving the affordance because it's of meaning to them. They're, they're, they might not even be um, uh, perceiving it as, a, as an affordance at all. They're more inclined to perceive the instruction that's been imposed onto them as when I get hit, I need to move right. And that just so happens that they move through a gate. But when I get, um, uh, um, you know, uh, some part of my body gets like um, clenched onto really hard, that means I need to jump. So I better jump now, regardless of where or what it is they're interacting with. Now that's a harder pedagogical approach. Um, I think, you know, this notion of guidance is much more, bodes much more or bodes nicer to a softer pedagogical approach um, or a loud and soft or a hard and soft pedagogical approach. This softer approach is much more about guiding towards the perception of affordances that are of meaning to creatures, not the instruction. So they're not attending to the instruction from the coach or from the rider. They're attending to features of the world that they're entering into a relation with. So it's directing that value and meaning out into the world as opposed to bringing it within the instruction itself. To to go back to my earlier example, I'm, I'm uh, when learning to cook, I don't want to attend to the recipe per se, I want to attend to the affordance of if something is palatable or not, if, if something is edible or if something tastes nice or something is too hot or not enough spiced or maybe needs more sugar or these, these types of things, they're affordances for ongoing action or ongoing, uh, um, ongoing behaviour that allows me to continually enter into a, a relation. So that value and meaning is very much directed into the world as opposed to, to direct it into a recipe or an instruction. Um, and and that's, that, that to me, uh, and I often get this in, in coaching, I, I hear about it when I, when I talk with, with coaches, they say, look, all these uh, perspectives on guiding and, and nudging and companionship, they're great. I, I love the thought of them. They're, they're fantastic. But they're really slow. Like in high-performing environments, simply telling an athlete to do something Um, is going to get that response. They're going to do it. If I say to them, if I impose a rule that says, like, every night of the week, you're not allowed to have a glass of wine or you're not allowed to have a beer, that's just the rule. You're not allowed to do it. Well, good athletes, whatever that means, are going to conform to that rule. But my response back is they're missing the point altogether. They're conforming to the rule. They're not conforming to the value and meaning that is supposedly masking that particular rule. And a, a really nice penny drop moment happened for me with a coach I was working with a few years ago who had the penny drop moment actually away from, they were a rugby union coach, away from sport. And they had it at, at home and they they came in uh, one day and we're having a discussion and they were pumped because they'd spent all of this time educating their young children they had a, a, a couple of really young boys educating their young children not to go into the second drawer in the kitchen because that's where all the sharp objects were so don't go into the second drawer that's that's the dangerous drawer right they locked it and, and did all of these things Um, And again, that's that's driving their attention towards that particular drawer. Like it's almost guiding their attention towards the rule. I'm not allowed to go near that second drawer because there's lots of sharp objects in it. But what happens if one day you are in the kitchen cooking and you left a, a knife or you left scissors on the bench? that weren't in that particular second row. the child's going to maybe attend to that particular thing and put themselves in a really risky situation because the value and meaning hasn't been established through that ongoing relationship um, uh, with um, with various objects in the kitchen. To me, then the coach came in and said, oh, all of a sudden I've changed how, I, how I, might I educate my children around sharp objects and safety in the kitchen because it's less rule imposed and more about helping them establish relationships with things about why Uh, this particular object might be dangerous. So why not to to hold this particular object in this particular way as opposed to conforming behaviour on on top of a rule? I think if we were to approach perhaps um, training and education in in equestrian sports in a really similar way, less about getting the horse to do the rule, attend to the rule, and more about helping Um, them explore and discover value and meaning in their surrounds through careful manipulation of constraints and through careful guiding of 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 behavior through various types of of um, of reinforcement Um, I I think we can go a a really long way to 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 helping horses and perhaps even riders establish a much more functional fit with with their surrounds now the reason I bring up an example of a, a child in a kitchen is because it's to emphasize that it, these, 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 these pedagogical approaches, I guess, are not um, sport-specific. Like, they're not just related to the phenomena of sport. They're not just related to uh, the, the phenomena of equestrian sport. They're things that transcend sport. They're things that we experience and encounter in everyday life. Um, why? Because our perception of, of, uh, of, of affordances is very much rooted in our value and meaning of the world. Based upon how I might feel at a various time of the day, if if I'm hungry, um, uh, you know, a a banana is a hell of a lot more (laughs) inviting than than if I think, geez, I got to eat it because I have to eat three vegetables and two fruit every day. I'm attending to the rule instead of actually learning to attend to I'm hungry and I've got a a bit of an exercise session later in the day. I better go and eat a banana because there's going to be enough sustenance in that to help me get through the the, the session as as a whole. So if any of that kind of makes sense to to people listening, the emphasis is very much on not allocating the or not situating the instruction or the rule to get someone or something to do something and more about encouraging them to discover that value and meaning in their environment, which is of value and meaning to them, not us. Um, It's it's, it's not necessarily um, meaningful to me, and that's exactly the same in, in, you know, Um, youth sport as an adult coach um, you know playing a particular game might not mean anything to me but it might mean a lot to the to to the children in that particular situation so again if I'm going to be serious about engaging in a softer pedagogical approach and guiding and nudging I'm going to do what I can to align my perception to what the the the, um, people the the children or in your case the creatures I'm working with are, uh, are, are perceiving such that I can find ways to join in uh, as opposed to impose on top of.
1: Yeah, and I think that's um, that whole notion of the soft pedagogy then means that we we don't end up in a situation where we just leave them in the field and they just eat grass with their friends and we're not doing anything. But but we find a way to develop a functional relationship, which is us learning and becoming skillful in our relationship with the horse, as well, isn't it? Completely entwined, and that idea that we are, um, I I do. I think about it a little bit. I, I, I have said this before. I'm a bit of a Strictly fan. Actually, I'm a lot of a Strictly fan. Um, and last year, I really was really fascinated watching John and Johannes doing the first all, all male, dance, you know, couple in the dances, because they swap lead regularly. Once John had learned the dancers, they would swap over. And I think certainly the show jumping is a bit like that because the horse has to do the jump, you know. And and I think it's mm. also one of the things that that. Certainly my horses, it's more meaningful for them than dressage, which has just got nothing, there's, there is nothing there to do. There's no meaningful task for the horse. And maybe that's something that that is for, for another time needs addressing. I think maybe some some rule changes around now understanding sort of meaningful movement and problem solving that, that maybe yeah. will change that. But the idea that we spend time developing um, and, and educating the horse in terms of what our intentions are. And they're very happy to come along. They're incredible animals and, and intentions. And then the horse then still has the ability to calibrate when they are attending to the information in the environment rather than to a rather than to information being told you know a cue like you're saying but they're not attending to the recipe they're attending to the ingredients and to the whole process of of, of, of cooking as it were they are then actively paying attention to the information in the environment that helps them to become more skillful and also helps them to stay safe yeah so it's a win-win you know they they yeah. then become then then it becomes partnership
0: yeah yeah i mean it, it is it's very much um as well, uh, I think it, it encourages a view, or it encourages this. Now, we, you often hear about it, I guess, in kind of mainstream, like, fulfilment psychology, but it is very much this notion of maintaining a presence in the present, you know? Like, it, it's very much being attentive to things that are there, but also being open to things that could emerge, um, not, not in a sense of predicting what will happen, but in a sense of kind of anticipating what could open up and anticipation in this sense of looking to head, keeping your head up, looking, looking forward, looking, looking around, looking what could be uh, on on the horizon to help us continually uh, find our way forward. Um, I I guess, from that perspective, like I, these days I, I um, like I I very much uh, clearly like these, the notion of intentionality and skilled intentionality, but I, I, Like growing more comfortable with maybe just having, it's not a skilled intentionality. Maybe it's like a skilled attentionality. Maybe we're always paying attention to things. Now, the reason I say that is sometimes I feel like intentions, almost like a risk viewed as like something that resides um, within me. It can risk being looked upon as like the intention comes first. Then the attention, and then the action. So it's almost this like sequential sequencing of behaviour that is that can almost be attributed to an intention. Something that's well, well, that has to be like a cognitive thing that comes about. I I I like to think more so is that uh, I like to think more so along the lines of it it not necessarily being an, an intention, a skilled intentionality, but almost like a skill, that intentionality. And the reason I like that is because it always pushes you out into the world. Now, um, uh, really uh, careful readers of, of ecological psychology will clearly know that's what intentionality is, is, is um, or how it's often phrased. Um, but but I think to re, to, to miss the uh, to to kind of avoid the risk of thinking that intention resides within us and that we act upon that thing within us that has that point of origination, I, I like to think more like I said along those lines of of attentionality of of skilled attentionality and and why it's because I'm always paying attention to various things which are always changing and that leads on to other things and like linking that back to something you said at the start, it's almost like we become um, uh, like solution finders, but that in itself isn't a means to an end either. Like you, you you supposedly solve a problem, but that just opens up another problem, which opens up another opportunity for you to keep carrying on. So I guess if we are to understand that notion of, of kind of problem solving, it's probably better to look at it more so in terms of continually establishing a like a functionality, a relationship with our surrounds, that we're not solving problems per se, which leads to like this almighty conclusion. We're just opening up more possibilities for you and I to keep carrying on or for you and the horse to continually carry on, um, to, to keep responding to one another in a, in a really functional way. Um, but you're right, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, like what you said before too. That, that that process in in your sense but I mean, in, in all educative senses is a two-way street uh, I think that's one of the first and, and most important things when we go into when we take up a educative position I guess is that I have to be open and responsive to what people creatures the the, the surrounds is, is showing me um, such that I can continually respond how I go about that process of, of, of exposure and um, so it's very much a two-way a two-way street uh, from 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 that point of view, which again I guess links back to that hierarchical notion that you're the educator, you are the the gatekeeper to all the information, you're the powerful one that's imposing all of these concepts onto people. Instead, I, I very much um yeah very much more comfortable with the notion that education is a, a process of learning to attend to things. Me learning to attend to. You who I'm, I'm supposedly the educative the educator, and you're supposedly the recipient, um, but it's not that at all. Uh, it's it's a it's this kind of mutual companionship that goes on, which I think if you dwell in that a little bit, you inadvertently discover the really profound implications of that for sports um, like equestrian, um, because the the horse. Again, what what if what if you flipped it to think that the horse was the educator, you know, like as as opposed to me being the rider educating the horse about what to do? Well, maybe in that situation, what if I'm the supposed student? How how would that change my relationship with with the horse? Um, and and again, I, it, it comes back to being humble enough to to be, or yeah, humbly comfortable enough to be able to take up with that.
1: Um, funny you should say that. <laughs> The reason why Dusky has her name, so Dusky's Welsh, and it means both to teach and to learn. Mm. And uh, I, I, when I got her, I was, I think I was 30, so I've had her 24 years, so I was 31 when I got her. And, yeah. um, and, uh, and I thought I was doing all the teaching. <laughs> it didn't take me very long to realise yeah. that I was doing the learning as well. Hence oh. the... And I'm I into that, and it because it made me stay in that space in that.
2: Yeah. space.
0: <laughs> that's how 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 valuable a kind of lesson is that though. You know, like it's it's such, I I um uh, I don't have children, but I've got a couple of I've got a few nieces and nephews, and I talk to my sister a lot about it. That she's like. These kids are teaching me things because, like, I'm having to constantly attend to to what they say and how they do and and how they're how they're interacting with each other. Um, and I keep reminding it that that's a really profound thing. You know, that's a really important thing to hang on to because it it, it kind of shows that just because um, you're older, or just because I'm a person and and the horse is a well I'm I'm a a human animal and the horse is a non-human animal it has no bearing whatsoever on me supposedly being able to profess my certainty about things and you should listen to what I'm I'm saying that's that to me at least is a is a really um, uninviting uh, really uninviting way and it's a really really simple way of of showing it I think in, in in a lot of sporting organizations I've worked in the minute the absolute minute you ask athletes their perspectives on things, straight away their attention to detail skyrockets. They start to pay more attention to, oh, the activity, you designed it in this way, this time. I would have done it in in perhaps this way for this, this, and this. Instead, if if you simply just say, look, we're doing this today, off you go and do it. I'm the coach, you're the player. Coaches coach, players play. Um, straight away, they're, they're more inclined to just fulfil what they think you want them to do, as opposed to be carefully attentive to, um, to things that are of, 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 of meaning to them. But the minute you ask people for their perspectives on things, their, their, um, their engagement, their willingness to um, share their experiences with you, Skyrockets, and that's why the, the, the notion of co-design is is such a powerful concept. I think because it's it's very much one um, where where we don't know the answers. Let's let's dis- let's discuss them. Let's see what what things emerge, which open up more opportunities for both of us to to um, uh, to, to to carry on. But um, I, I I mean I, it's it's probably quite fascinating from from your perspective because I often get asked like, oh well, how do you how do you co-design tasks with kids? Kids don't know what they don't know. Um, well, I guess I always link back to that example I spoke about earlier from Shirley Strum. Forget everything you think you know about what kids are supposed to do and just observe them in their play, uh, see what they like to do, see the, the trees that they play around and perhaps start to consider why, um, see the size of the balls that they like to use or maybe the sticks in the park that they use as cricket bats or baseball bats and start to understand maybe why. And instead of taking them away from those things and imposing things that you think they need, Maybe look to uh, like take those parts, those those things that they, they play with, and start to manipulate them to make them even more inviting for them uh, to 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 take up with. So in your case, I guess when you're working with um, with with uh, with horses, that would be even more profound. That your 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 kind of superpower, I guess, would reside in your observation of how uh, the horses are taking up with certain things within their environment which you can then make more inviting or less inviting and straight away you've gone into a process of Um, co-design you've you've let the horse show you what is important to them so that you've made it more uh, comfortable or maybe even a little bit more challenging to force them or to perturb certain behaviours. Um, but again, you, you absolutely have entered straight into a relation which is which is forged through through co-designing features of the, the surrounds. You haven't spoken to them. What do you like? What don't you like? Um, you, you've, yeah. you've you've sat back and observed.
1: And and for you know the the stuff that Kathy Sierra, who who you know as well, um, it's exactly the same. As soon as horses are. Um, as soon as you're interacting them with that way, instead of just switching off and and blindly obeying cues and just giving you just what they need, they they suddenly have this you know hugely improved interconnection with the information in their environment, and um, and and just start to do stuff that you think they'll never be able to do or would take years to do. I mean, and that's I think that's the thing that. Um, and I'm going to go back to the example I give from, the, and this has come, I don't, have you ever watched um, the uh, Serengeti rules?
0: No, but you have reminded me a few times and I do need to watch that now. <laughs> I need
1: to watch it. And this idea that we've just become so blind to impoverished environments that we don't yeah. recognise them as that anymore. And, and for me, that really stood out in, in our movement systems of people and horses we look at at movement even supposedly skilled athletes and we think that's amazing. And I'm going, but it's still really impoverished. Mm. It it should, it, you know, we've in our rush to make things happen quicker down a particular linear pathway of skill we've lost. We lose so much variability. So we end up looking at something and thinking that it's rich, and diverse where, and actually it's really impoverished and the same yeah. with the horses and once they move past that you just you start to realize actually how capable they are and what they can do we spend so much time error correcting them <laughs> like with the yeah. kids to do a particular yeah. thing it's like we take this sapling and we prune it so much it can never be you know this incredible tree
2: that's yeah. it
0: it's so important that what, what, what you've just said there and I think it's such a you know and it's something that's often glossed over I think because it is so entangled in in who we are you know like um uh, I'm very fortunate for example to work in an institute that's very supportive of just being who you want to be from that perspective so you know um, as um, as as a uh, academic, people would think, oh, geez, you you need to look a certain way, you need to do a certain. I wear like, also I wear vans to work. I like skateboarding, you know, like I, I like all of these other things, which historically people would look at and go, you don't conform to what an academic should 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 look like, or in, in your particular case, like oh well, you, that that horse isn't conforming to what they should be looking like. Well, no. I'm not conforming or that horse isn't conforming to some prior established um, uh, not real image that has been conflated societally about what things should be like. And what that does is prevents us from attending to things as they are, and instead we attend to perspectives of who we or what we think things should be or how we think people should act or how we think um, a, a particular action should be done um, and the, to me, at least, the, the, the great irony in all of it is if you really look at, at, at skilled people going about their businesses, it might look automated and, and it might look like the same thing over and over and over. But clearly, as, as we know, and from what decades of research shows us, is that there is so much subtle variation in these things which we are very quick to ascribe expertise as the repetition of the same thing over and over again or, or repetition is being able to do things really fast or, wow, look at that athlete or look at that person, they've gone into autopilot, will we'll know. I think any really skilled artisan or any really skilled craftsperson in whatever their domain despite them potentially making it look like it's really easy, will tell you it's immensely um, uh, demanding for, for their concentration. But that concentration is being pushed out into the world to attend to things um, all, all the time you know it's it's very very careful with what they pay attention to very very subtle but you and I look at it as like oh well that just looks like they just switched into autopilot and off they've gone but no it's a constant process of continually adapting and self-organizing to the unfolding materials that they're working with the constraints of those unfolding materials that they, they're, they're working with so to us it looks like they're conforming to a image um, but in reality, what they're doing is they're very carefully attending to the nuances of the materials that they're working, not on or not that they're imposing to, but the materials that they're working with, they're aligning their perceptual systems to its ebbs and uh, and flows to help with this perspective. You know, really interestingly, I often go back to thinking of uh, basket makers and weavers. It looks like they're just, you know, automated in autopilot, rhythmically going about these these, or metronomically rather, going about these tasks. Um, But what, what's, really going on, is they're really sensitive to how the material bends and to how the material twists, to the tensile strength of what they're tying together, which allows them to keep moving on, not in a metronomic way of just, you know, robotically moving towards the sound of something, but in a more rhythmic way, in a way of doing it where they're constantly uh, resonating to how the the material or to how the the, um, uh, unfolding um, uh, artefact is constantly changing, which they're constantly changing too, which is constantly changing again. So it's this ongoing responsiveness, which looks uh, automated, but in reality, it's 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 far from. Uh, and y- y- yeah, I mean, that's that's to me at least, that's almost non-contestable because the the, the evidence is so strong that it it shows us time and time again that that's that's actually, we can try to do things the same way time and time again and there's going to be variability in everything that we do.
1: Yeah, you know, and all of the research coming out around Think Aloud is doing the same thing, even from an IP perspective and they're going, oh, this is really interesting. So this supposedly, you know, this supposedly automatic elite athletes, golf, you know, what they're doing is they're talking about the breeze, the lay of the grass, the, you know, the um, how damp the air is, uh, what's outside They're so, like you say, they are so in tune and so attuned to the perceptual information in their environments and the, the novices are talking about where the hands are and whether they've got the feet the right distance apart. They're trying to over control their movements probably because yeah.
2: they're
1: do. Um, it's really interesting. So yeah, so even even those who are doing research from an IP perspective are still getting those, getting that information, getting those results.
0: I, I often wonder, maybe we've got. Now, um, for those less familiar, I guess, in ecological dynamics or in, in ecological psychology, we often talk about the scale of analysis, right? So we focus less on the organism and more on the the, the mutuality or the reciprocity of the organism in their, their environment. And I often wonder, um, to, to dovetail exactly what you said before, skill doesn't reside within the action, right? Skill's not doing an action. Skill is in... Um, aligning our perceptual systems to the constant like unfoldingness of one's environment and so if if we take that as our real important part learning to play golf like learning to surf um, learning to kick a ball Mm -hmm. isn't about the repetition of an action it's very much about learning to attend and respond to all these ebbs and flows of things within our environment and straight away then you start to think geez how kind of silly is driving along an Australian southeast coast in summer and seeing all these people pretend to learn to surf by standing on their surfboard on the sand. Well, they're trying to master the action as opposed to actually learning to attend to various features of the wave while they're in the swell and respond to things while they're in the swell. Learning to surf isn't about Uh, learning to stand on a surfboard learning to surf is learning to attend and respond to how the surfboard responds to the wave to how I respond to the surfboard whilst I'm trying to find my way to the shore Um, so there's all these other things that are entangled into it which again I guess links back to or opens up a really interesting path of like the importance of context and contextualization in learning to do things and and how we again we 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 risk impoverishing one's environment by taking it out of that context um, as as opposed to um, embracing it. One of the reasons, clearly, uh, ask anyone that's teaching someone to surf by doing it on the sand and they'll say, well, it's easy to control. Again, there's the very point we spoke about before. It, it comes back to trying to control one to do it. I can guarantee you, I'll take my a um, uh, six-year-old niece, and she can stand on a surfboard on the sand, but she's not standing up in the swell. So standing on a surfboard on the sand doesn't mean she can surf by any means. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a really important consideration, um, which, again, weaves it all back to this notion of embracing the uncertainty, but associated with that, then education becomes about exposure. And, again, to, to your point earlier on, it's really profound too you know again i guess a criticism at times leveraged towards this is oh well then you're just simply saying stick someone on a horse and say go and figure it out for yourself or stick someone in the surf and go off you go go and kind of figure out how to surf by yourself that's a really lazy criticism leveraged towards it because i think it shows a profound misunderstanding of the very notion of trying to establish a, a profound relationship with Um, the the world that is of value and meaning and interest to us Um, so it's it's very much not about sending someone on their way and say figure it out as you go it's it's much more much much more than um, uh, than that.
1: That was uh, you you've just wondered exactly where I was about to to go which is then um, you know it's probably to tie up a little bit uh, it's worth thinking about um, or exploring then what is expertise and, and mm. in that, that we have um, we, we have more um, exposure more interaction we've got an idea about where to look for things what affordances perhaps might be worth um, highlighting or, or making more obvious for the horse or the human and and mm. yeah and, and that actually it's not a lazy way of coaching or a lazy way of being in any way at all um, it frees up a lot of stuff. We can free up a controlling m- movements to perfect biomechanics. It frees up knowing all the answers to something necessarily, but um yeah, just sort of exploring. Then what? What then is if we're coaching? What do we bring to the table? A lot of coaches say to me, "Well, if I haven't got this perfect technical template that I'm going to error correct to, then what am I doing? What's my job?" That's, yeah. that's all I know, and you're telling me that I have to let go of it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah it's, it's yeah that that's that's a really really hard thing to to. i think to preface that as well you know and, and i said this recently on another another podcast it's you know like I, there is an uncomfortability i feel in you know uh, criticizing um uh people for claiming for certainty why because i don't think it's their fault i think it's a systemic issue you know like it's not how, how you know again and, and it's it's really really how's a, a coach supposed to stand in front of a board to validate their job when they're losing games to go no well we're, the, we're, 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 we're not we don't have a game model we have game principles and we want to play with more flexibility and, and we want the players to explore uh, more things this is a longer more sustainable journey we're on as opposed to these acute immediate performance supposed gains which are then lost. As soon as players are exposed to some form of adversity, how do you blame a coach for wanting to claim for certainty when the board, when a board, or when a national body is is you know demanding that they provide answers to things? Hang on, Marianne, you're telling me you don't know these things. You're the one that we've employed into this position. You should know these things. And if you don't know, well, we'll find someone that does. Well, how, how do I get upset at you then? For for you then? Um, Claiming for these things because you're trying to hold on to your your position. So, on one hand, I, I do appreciate that there's a, a systemic issue at play, which we need to, which 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 needs consideration both academically in the literature and 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 practically in in the field. Um, I think we're starting to see that shift, and we just need to keep going. We, we we just need to keep going. Clearly, as with any systemic changes, it's going to take time, and we just need to keep keep keep. Um, keep going um, in, in that direction. People like yourself and Craig Morris is a great example of, of a coach who's really gone about this process of embracing this uncertainty straight away. Then he, he's, he almost feels liberated, risking talking on his behalf, but we're, we're, we've got a, a makeshift enough where he, he shared some of these things. He feels liberated beyond this notion of, oh, I don't have to know a technical model, I don't have to have a superior tactical strategy to overcome another team or another country in this particular um, race, what if I just talk to the athletes? What if instead of of being the the hauser to all these answers, which sometimes I don't even know if they're right or wrong, but I feel compelled to tell them anyway, what if instead of feeling that that kind of uncomfortable um, uh, um, certainty, what if I just gave that up and instead started to invite more people along? Come along. What are you, what are you guys seeing? What are you guys hearing? Instead, started to become more of a facilitator of opportunities and correspondences and interactions between people and people and their environments. Maybe then instead of focusing on about winning a medal, maybe it becomes more than about, well, actually, that athlete, when they came into the program were highly neurotic, were highly focused on their own supposed technique and nailing some particular movement. And progressively over five or six years, they may not have won a medal, but all of a sudden they've become much more interested in coaching and, and, and taking up a different career path after their sport. And that's come about because I've been really active in inviting them along to start to talk with me about what they're seeing, why they feel these certain pressures, why maybe I don't see what they're seeing and why I can't hear what they're hearing. So this notion of what is success starts to change because success doesn't become about winning medals or winning championships. Success becomes about helping open up opportunities for people well beyond their careers. Medals come along the way, that's great, but They're they're short-lived, I guess, from that perspective. Championships are short-lived until the next one is won, the year after, or until another gold medal is won in four years' time. Instead, if we focus a little bit more on fostering opportunities for people to find ways to continually carry on, I think we can become a lot more. Well, uh, sport can become much more sustainable for um, uh, 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 for all. So the role then very much shifts towards a hierarchical know-it-all, which I have encountered very few coaches that have fit that mould anyway, and they inadvertently just try to conform to that because that's what societal conventions have imposed upon them. And that's why it's a liberation when they don't feel that anymore towards coaches that move towards this kind of ongoing facilitation. And it's really funny. Like, I, I, I like the idea of it being, like, this, this wisdom of uncertainty um, and I, I feel like it's something that a lot of the really senior coaches that have been in various coaching positions for decades that I've worked with over time stumble into it anyway. They, they, they're a 60, 70-year-old coach that's been coaching for 30, 40 years That kind of are really quite open to go. I entered thinking I knew all the knew all the answers. I entered thinking what's going to win me games is having a superior tactical model. What's going to win me games is how I um, drill and command the players to do certain things that are going to conform to this superior system of play, which is going to defeat everybody. And I'm going to use all the statistics. I'm going to follow what the numbers say. I'm going to have advanced analytics, which is going to guide or inform all of my practice towards now after all this time realizing that what really like inadvertent commerce wins you games is establishing a genuine relationship with people within your organization a genuine Um, ongoing relationship with players and coaches and analysts and high performance department, not a siloed, you do your job, I'll do my job, but an ongoing mesh and entanglement of people genuinely feeling like they belong, like they want to come to work, like they want to um, strive towards, um, you know, or aspire towards um, uh, these, these things that are always suspended on the horizon. That's the thing that I think coaches, really experienced coaches Learn along the way, and that comes from this inadvertent realization that, geez, I don't know all the answers. I didn't know all the answers. Why? Because there is no such thing. There is no such thing as housing all the answers. If some superior game model was going to be uh, was going to win you the you know EPL every year or the AFL every year or the NFL every year, well, that coach would just go from organization to organization, demanding higher prices time and time again. And that's not how sport works. Why? Because it's such a dynamic relational phenomenon. So spend less time focusing on that, I think, and more time establishing those relationships. Really interestingly, I found in in my time as well, that wisdom of uncertainty has led to such a rich inhabitant knowledge from these senior coaches that it's fascinating to observe. I've, I've had plenty of experiences where players would have come in And according to all their wellness tests and metrics, they should be fine to train. Um, You know, everything's telling you that they're okay to train from what we can quantify from them. But the head coach has, has, has picked something up in their demeanour or in a conversation they've had with them that has led them to think, no, something's not quite right. They dig a little further and they realise that something is going on, which is actually putting them at risk to training. So maybe the best thing for them today is not to train. Maybe the best thing for them today is to actually go home or to have a conversation with the, the psychologist or to... Perhaps um, sit on the sidelines and watch for, for, for today's session. These are things that you can't learn by following what a number says. Uh, these are things which are forged in establishing genuine relationships. Like with you, I'm sure, with your son, um, with, your, uh, with, with dogs that are your companions, with horses that are your companions, you, you establish deep relations with them that you're able to attend to things that I wouldn't be able to attend to. And that's what expertise for me at least comes back to. It's not being able to recite an internalized stock of knowledge. Um, expertise resides simply to me in being comfortable to dwell in certain environments for longer than others. And as I dwell in those environments for longer than others, I pick up things that others can't necessarily pick up. That's why when I go to um, uh, my, uh, my partner's farm in North, North Queensland, Uh, If her dad says, I probably wouldn't go swimming in that waterhole today, um, even though I know that you know there shouldn't be any crocodiles in this particular area this time of the year I'm not going to worry about what the manual says what the the, the the tourist guide says in this particular area I'm going to listen to what uh, Gary has to say why because he dwells in that environment a hell of a lot longer than me and probably a hell of a lot longer than the person that wrote that manual so I'm going to listen to that inhabitant knowledge as opposed and that wisdom as opposed to uh, um, I guess trying to overlay a, a certainty of oh no I it here so i i kind of know better um and again straight away i think that that um, shows an appreciation a humility um and 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 an embracement of uncertainty where we're able to enter into a more careful relationship The follow up to that very simply is well why wouldn't i go swimming today oh well the two days ago we had a heavy rain which opened up this particular waterway which could have fed you know crocodiles in that particular area so i would avoid it for for that particular there may not be any in there but I probably just wouldn't go in there out of, um, out, out of uh, risk mitigation. Perfect. All right. Well, maybe next time I'll attend to those things that he's, he's attending to. So, yeah. a few <laughs> tangents that I went off there, but I guess you wouldn't expect anything different from me, to be <laughs> honest. No, I, but do you
1: know? I, I know, Thank you. And I'm um, I, I, mindful, I've just come back from uh, last week, three days in Birmingham. There was the, uh, the ICE, which is the International Council for Coaching Excellence. At the global house which was sort of three days of conference with with um coaches n- most of you know um podium or pathway coaches so they're working with high level athletes um and and basically the 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 whole emphasis there was that we need to move away from um you know what to things to relationships and, yeah. the, and the four coaches from you know sort of olympic athletes that came and did their presentations on the first one they just talk, spoke about the fact that that It was the relationships and being able to build relationships and and have that sensitivity to the individuals, but also to what the performance environment might be that they're going to go into to be able to support them through more representative practice. Yep. But it was all relationships. Three days, that was the, yeah.
2: It's.
0: I mean, it it sounds a little cliche, I guess, you know, like, oh, it's all about relationships, but... To, to me, at least, if it's not, then what is it about? Um, and if it's not about relationships, it's around a hierarchical power shift, and that, to me, is, is that's not how I want to take up with mm-hmm. um, with 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 uh, coaching or, or or science. Others may, and that's 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 completely their their prerogative. But to me, at least, a lot of this time, um, or a, a lot of a lot of the the real uh, expertise of coaching, I think, resides within spending longer in environments. Um, than others, and by spending longer in environments, we establish greater relationships with things. And athletes are clearly an integral part of those environments. Your horses are clearly an integral part of those environments. There's a beautiful sentiment um, in uh, in some of the um, uh, anthropological research which shows that um, there is, and their ethnographers really struggle to understand why, but there was, um, in some of the um, uh, island communities, people regularly... Um, would go out to sea or go into the the jungle for no other reason just to be in those environments, right? And for for us, maybe, um, that's quite an uncomfortable thing. Just like, what do you mean? Why are you just going out there? Shouldn't you be fishing or don't you want to go to get to another destination or are you looking for food or like again even if you just say to someone i'm just going for a walk oh what for you want to clear your head or something well, no I, I just want to go for a walk like uh, i'll often have this discussion with with um, with family and friends i like to do a lot of like running and trail running and these types of things and they're like oh so you're training for an event no i just am going out to spend time doing these things that i like doing in these environments that i like doing because i like spending time in these things now this Anthropological perspective, the ethnographers really struggled to understand that because of this kind of like productified notion of what it means to be a person. This, like, well, you need to go out there and do something and then come back. Uh, instead, for them, they, they saw or they, they see the environment clearly as as a as a as kind of another entity to establish a relationship with, just in the same way that. Um, I would happily sit with my partner, Chloe, and we don't really have to say anything, just we, we, we enjoy being in each other's presence, as you would with your horses and, and, and um, uh, Snoopy, you would enjoy just being in each other's presence, not to anchor a, an outcome to be exploited, but just so you can get to know and attend each other a little better that's to me at least and often often a sign of a really healthy relationship if you can be with someone and not feel this desire to be productive by constantly talking about things or i think if you can be comfortable in that um quietness um i think you're on a a fairly good path of of having established a a healthy relationship with um uh, with with one another and to me there's, for me, at least, there's enough evidence out there outside of sport and outside of the mainstream, which clearly shows that that's what, that's, that's pretty common uh, for, for um, lots of societies that perhaps your listeners and, and, and perhaps you and I are less familiar with. But that doesn't mean it's any less compelling of evidence. It just means it's some stuff that we perhaps don't necessarily perceive because of the society that we live in.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then we try and do things like, you know, we have to meditate or do these things because we've missed, we're missing that, um, that human being, you know, and I know it's a real cliche about becoming a human doing instead of a human being. And and I think that it's a massive thing with that. You know, like I I speak to a lot of people about the time they spend with the horses and relationships. And I say, how much time do you spend just being with your horse, not demanding Mm. anything, not doing anything, but just actually spending time with them. Um, When they live outside, it's great. You know, I often go out and I just poop it. And that allows me to spend time where I'm busy doing something and I'm not demanding anything from them. I'm literally hanging out with them. And I also, have you heard of that? I think it's Japanese phrase. They talk about forest bathing, just being in a forest Mm. and absorbing that. I I say I quite often, certainly if I go out in the evening, I'll horse bathe. So if I go out, they'll come and stand next to me. And they just yeah. stand and be with me, and it's incredible. It's just amazing. Yeah. Just kind of oh. just hang out with them, doing nothing yeah. except being.
0: Yeah, you know, like I even think about it in terms of, um, like, uh, like academia, for example. You know how how or in any job for that matter, even in in high performance sport, how how often do we? you know, prioritize or allocate time to um to, to kind of in you know, a in a way I guess to to like thinking and um, being and, and doing that doesn't necessarily have a productive I can't tell you like what has come from it you know like but but in a way it's it's a way of us conti- helping us continue to establish uh, relationships with people or to to just explore to to explore loose ends to explore things that are of interest to us, which which might not lead to anything, um, but at the same time, that process of having gone to to you know explore it and to to look things up um, inadvertently leads might lead to something else. Now, to try to anchor a kind of value to why that's important, I think is to almost miss the point or altogether. But I think a lot of it comes back to um, a, a, an overly productive sped up view of the world of what what it means to to um, to 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 be I, I think it's um it was rebecca solnit who's who you uh, she wrote this wonderful book a few years ago on the history of walking um, and she in in her prologue she spoke a lot of she thought her mind worked at about three miles per hour so walking was a great way for her to explore the realm of her imagination um, whilst in in those surrounds, and for me, I, I've always I've always thought that's such a a wonderful um, a, a, a kind of wonderful example of of kind of not slowing down. It's not a matter of slowing down. It's 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 perhaps um, paying just closer attention to things as as we as, as we go. I, I heard on one of your podcasts um, a, a a while back. Um, wasn't it, uh, i think it might have been on your UK coaching podcast and it and it was with um i can't remember his name but you, uh he uh he was a climber um who uh, was a friend of yours um
1: or and he, the head injury. that's the one
0: yep that's the one that's you, you exactly the one
1: up <laughs> yeah
0: and and he he like he reminded me of of that of that excerpt from Rebecca Solnit when cuz he spoke about his injury Kind of forced him to slow down, but that wasn't something taken away from him. In a way, it was almost uh, an, a, something that was uh, afforded to him. It was an opportunity, and he spoke about then finding beauty in everything, in the veins of leaves and and these types of things. And, and to me, I'm like, that's that's exactly that is exactly what it's about. Like children find that in, in all sorts in all, all sorts of things, um, and and that's not, that's not something we should we should shy away from. Um, I think it's something we should be more mindful of and more attentive to because, um, again, we, we risk focusing on the time to things or things that we have to get done throughout the course of the day. Uh, I often think, um, you know, a, a, again, what, what if we... Um, flip this notion of using technology to make us fit more things in, but to use technology to help us establish more profound relationships with things. So we often think about, you know, cars or they should cut down travel time so I can fit more things in when I get to my destination where I need to get to. Well, why don't you just walk? Yeah. It's going to take you longer to get to a supposed destination, but maybe the walk is more important than actually driving. Um, You know, these are, these, these are things that I think um, we don't spend anywhere near enough time um, uh, can uh, considering. And again, it's hard to blame people because we live in a society that drives that socio-cultural notion that to be seen as being a professional or an expert, you have to fill your day with things. Yeah. Your diary has to be, you know, it's almost like an aspiration to go, look at how busy I am. Well done. You know, like you're getting all these things done. Well, that's, that person must be really important because they've got all these things they need to do. That's um, never really felt right for me. And that's not to say that, you know, you need to be lazy. I think it's more to, to appreciate the mindfulness to explore things that catch your attention, you know, like to pay a little bit more attention to, like, um, uh, things that you would just naturally not worry about. I'll give you a really great but really boring example of that. Behind me, if, if you can see, you mightn't be able to see it if you're just listening to it. But behind me, um, there's a, a there's a tree, and most days at about 2 to, to 2.30, there's a pigeon that, that, that sits in just a particular branch. Now, I noted that when I was sitting outside doing some work uh, during lockdown and progressively I, I, I um, stopped attending to my laptop screen and started attending to the, the pigeon and what it was doing at that particular time, which led me to discover a nest that was there. And around that time every day, it flew off to go and find some food and... and, and um, and 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 come back. So instead of looking at the pigeon in that from that perspective of like ah oh, like a really just a it's just a pigeon it's just a bird. I started to look at it as a social creature that clearly had a life and that clearly had a death and that clearly had relations that were established and and it was responsible to other things. Point being, when you actually start to pay attention to things that are there. Uh, the whole world can continue to be an ongoing source of astonishment and wonder, as opposed to trying to fit as many things in. We close ourselves off, and we just follow the path that's been laid out by someone else. So, um, yeah, again, some some quirky things to to explore. Oh, yeah. there, but, um, uh, things that that I, that yeah, I, I straight away resonated with. If if listeners hadn't hadn't listened to it yet, I would encourage them to go and listen to to that that discussion you had with with um, with Paul because it's it's again. It's um, it's a really fascinating, a really profound one in and of itself.
1: Yeah, it's uh, he he is. Um, I mean, I've known him, I think, since I was about 18, 19. It's a long time ago. <laughs> he is incredible, absolutely incredible. Um, one of my favourite people in the world, and very honoured to to be a friend. Uh, yeah,
0: he he kind of reminded me of that discussion a little bit as well about and you touched on it before, as like not as a human being but as a human doing, and and I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective, Um, but I I like the kind of pronominal shift from human being to, um, well, becoming human rather to human becoming. Um, So becoming human, it's almost like a a phrase that we bestow upon kids, you know, it's like, oh, that that child's learning to become a human uh, or learning to become a person, well, what, what if we just flipped it completely and it was more about, well, they're, they're kind of human becoming. They're always on the cusp of to do and learn and be something else. And I think Paul, that example, that podcast that you gave with Paul, is a, is a really fascinating and, and really tragic, but also really um, profound example of that, of that very thing that, you know, he, he kind of, I guess, proposed to have become a really skilled, really expert mountain climber. Um, and then had a tragic accident, but afforded a whole heap of other opportunities which emphasised to him that who he is is never settled. It's always on the cusp of becoming something else. And linking back to equestrian, your relation with your horse is never settled. Um, It's always on its cusp to becoming something else, and that's why you always have to be attentive and responsive to one another because the horse is always different, you're always different, your relation is always different, the context that your relation emerges is always different. Um, so it's never settled. It's never fi- fixed, but it's always becoming. Um, it's always, yeah, always on, on its way to becoming something else.
1: And that opens up incredible opportunities, doesn't it? Because of instead of always reducing to something that you think something should be, you you are able to discover what it can be or could be. Yeah. And yep. that, like you say, that there's a sustainability not only in sort of like health and, and just well-being but also the learning becomes huge uh, uh, and uh, you know and Paul I think is probably a classic example of somebody who who was able to accept what had happened instead of being mm. angry and bitter about it but then become highly um, attuned to a new way of living which like you say yeah. opened up a whole new world of opportunities and wonder yeah. and amazing experiences for him, because yeah. he had himself to do that.
0: Absolutely, uh, absolutely, and, and um, you know, I think there's there's really rich lessons for everyone to learn in 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 those um, you know in listening to those those types of um, those types of stories. But it's to, yeah, to, to me again, it's um uh, it, it's another example of. Um, uh, so I, I talked to my, my partner Chloe a lot about it who works with a lot of spinal cord injury patients and, and um, uh, she often finds it really difficult because uh, she can't assimilate with their action capabilities right so she perceives things different to, to, to them the really simple and but, but really important thing that you know, she has discovered along the way one of the most important parts of their rehab process, their rehabilitation process or way of taking up with the world now is just engaging in conversation with them. What, what can you do? What can't you do? What are you feeling differently? What aren't you feeling differently? And then observing how they take up with things. And, again, that links back to this notion of co-designing parts of the, the environment together as opposed to me telling you this is how it needs to be. And and Paul would be a wonderful example of that, I'd imagine, in lots of ways. Learning to climb again with the change in his action capabilities is, is very much a process where others might think, oh, it's it's too hard for you to do that. You can't do it. Don't do that. You it's it's you, you can't do it in that particular way. But that's another example of them imposing their action capabilities on top of what he can do instead of aspiring to find in common with him and going, oh, you can do that. How can I move this to make it a little bit easier for you? Or how can I move in that particular way to, to, to perhaps see things that maybe you aren't seeing? And again, to Link it back to that example where he said, you know, because I am slower now, um, I, I, I don't take that as a negative thing. I actually take that as a, as a positive thing because I can see things and pick up things that others just walk straight on past. Well, that straight off the bat is a lesson for us all, I think, to, to, to be able to learn with and, and, and from with regards to, to, to him. And Chloe regularly comes home and, and talks about things that she's learned along the way from the clients that, that she works with, um, not, not works uh, for or imposes onto. But, yeah, like I said, she works with, um, finds way of, ways of, of um, facilitating opportunities for both, uh, for both to carry on.
1: Yeah, and, and again, very much... The, the way if we interact and, and move with and at the speed of others, whether that's children, you know, mm. and certainly still with, with Sam or, or our animals, our horses being. And, and again, it's something that most people talk about um, as being why they love being around their horses, that actually, A, they mm. have to be attentive, regardless of how you're interacting with them. You cannot have your, you know, they have to have your full attention. Um, and they're so easy to give attention to um yeah. but also um they they don't work by our time <laughs> so most of <people> courses <laughs> are, are, are famous for always being late or regularly being late and you just go you know my, with my project here you know I've got my last project I'm working um I think I've got nearly 20 um coaches that are participating in the last bit which is amazing for for a project like this but i know i know i've said to them look i know if you if you don't turn up at zoom don't worry i'll just assume you're somewhere out with a horse and we'll just reschedule
2: yeah
0: i mean that that, again that that in itself is is a really interesting that that could be something really interesting to observe as as you, you 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 go along as well but i mean that that to me would be a really another really healthy sign of someone that's attending to uh the horse as opposed to conforming it to some prior established thing that suits their narrative um, and that in in you know um uh like uh, ethology and environmental, philo- uh, environmental philosophy i think there's a really interesting shift in there that that at least i'm i'm reading more more of these days along the lines of you have to genuinely ask yourself am i doing things for my own gratification or am I doing them for the genuine care and well-being of the the animal that I'm working with, you know, and that's a really profound and great example. Um, Stephen Talbot talks a lot about, you know, he'd put out these bird feeders in his backyard thinking that he was doing this great thing for the chickadees, but there was disease proliferation um, uh, because the chickadees were spending a lot of time together than they normally would in in a kind of supposed natural habitat um so if, if he thought well actually I'm doing them a favor I'm giving them food well on careful reflection he thought no that was coming from a gratification of I wanted the birds in my backyard um and that wasn't good for them so if I'm genuinely responsible for the birds uh, or to the birds I wouldn't set up an environment that is that is going to be harmful for them. I'm going to let them show me what's of meaning to them, and I think in your case, it's yeah, that's that couldn't be more more important. Um, you know, if you're genuine if you're really genuine, you would appreciate that whipping a horse doesn't do anything other than hurt the horse. It doesn't make them go faster. It doesn't, doesn't do anything other than see some gratification for you as the rider or the jockey or for the trainers watching on or for the spectators watching on. It, it, it's gratification for them, not for the horse. So if we're genuine about being responsible to the experiences of, of others, we need to appreciate what their experiences are and find ways to join with, not to impose on top of. Um, and that, that to me is, is, um, is a, almost a, the first question one should ask themselves Am I doing things for the gratification of myself, or am I doing it to, because I genuinely care about the well being of these creatures that I'm a companion with, uh, whether that be a dog, a cat, a bird, a horse, your partner, your children, um, whatever it might be? I think that's, a, that's that's almost question one from my perspective.
1: It's I'm mindful that uh, we that we, we may have to wrap up soon, but I think that's that brings us nicely on to um, probably a, what will be the first uh, of sports, which is that equestrian sports are facing a challenge around their social license to operate, um, mm. which was something I was only familiar with uh, ten years ago through mining, through you know Sam's Sam's work in um, in exploration, and. Uh, and that's really interesting because um, it, I think it will become a challenge in other sports as well. And whether it's a horse or a child, you know, do we need to adjust or adapt the sport that we do so that, um, so that those children, most, most athletes are children, certainly the mm. aspiring athletes are many actually are still competing Olympics are still children. Is that just adult gratification or even worse, financial gain? to the detriment, or is that something that we can still justify? And how do we navigate that? Because both of us are obviously in sport, you know, and yep. in sport, academics and, you know, I, I don't want children not to have sports any more than yep. I would want not to be able to, to ride with horses. But I passionately believe that we do need to adjust and adapt and really start to make that change. Even if it means changing rules and changing the way some of the sports look, so that they truly, you know, we recognise that they need to be truly beneficial to both.
0: Yeah, and it's
1: to children or horses.
0: That's that's it. It's exactly right. Um, you know, and I, I think a lot of it really seeds from that 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 initial question. You know, is who is this really benefiting? You know, is it is it am I doing it for the gratification of? spectators am I doing it for for, for myself am, am I doing it for do I genuinely think it's going to help this person genuinely think it's it's in the best interests of that person and really the only person that can answer those questions are the people that are in that immediate um correspondence you know like they're they're the only ones that can really um yeah r- really talk through those things oh I can't say what it means yeah. for, for someone yeah
1: and lies I guess for me the biggest challenge we've got and this because I don't know if you listened to the podcast I did with Stu and Mia Alice Clark that's um you know the the trouble we get and it and it, this comes up from the if a horse or child can't say no then saying yes is meaningless but if if through early education and and some of the sports gymnastics for example is 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 the type of sport where obedience compliance Behave good behavior is is very hot, you know, is is prevalent in the coach athlete relationship. Ditto with the horses, and it's like there's this micro conditioning Mm. into compliance. That means that when you say, Is this okay? they're likely to say yes because they've been conditioned into it, so you know, and, and then that's where it gets really complex, isn't it? It's like, How do we? And then this for me is why I'm so passionate about the way we work with the horses. How can we change the relationship? So we don't get to the stage where we're saying, look, it said yes. And it's like, but it doesn't, it, it, you, it's yeah. being groomed into compliance. <laughs> there is a learned helplessness of both the children and the yeah. horses that, that means oh, oh. At risk then of um, being in situations that are not, they don't want to be in.
0: Most definitely. That's, that's just so true. You know, um, uh, I've often found um, some of the uh, more experienced athletes I've worked with um, that have often come through heavily prescribed, heavily coach centric practices that the organization moves more towards an ecological approach. These, these senior athletes really struggle with that. And they, they really struggle with the, 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 the associated um, exploration and freedom and, and, and adaptability and uncertainty. Why? For that exact point that you just said, they've been conditioned on a, in, in an environment where um, I'm your, you know, I'm the coach's number one, Lieutenant, I'll do whatever they need me to do. You know, you tell me and I'll get it done. Um, And, and, to, from from my end again, how do you blame the athlete for for following that rigid way of being when that's all they've ever known through their professional adult life as an elite athlete? And in in, in lots of other cases, in gymnastics, like you said, and in equestrian, these these behaviors are so deeply conditioned that it's it's you you almost um, like the, the, a lot of the hard a lot of the a lot of the detrimental work has already been done before you can even see any, any change because it has been so conditioned into them that this is, it's almost like their safety blanket. You take this away from it. But that to me is like all the more detrimental because what happens if, um, you know, a, a, a young athlete or um, uh, a horse, for example, that's been conditioned to do something over and over and over again and then something happens and they can't do that anymore? Or their their career is over, you know, like that's it. You're no longer a world champion. Someone else has surpassed you. Our resources are going to someone else now. So see you later. Well, that adversity, that real deep adversity, they can't overcome, and it leads to really profound, really detrimental um, well-being, mental health issues much later on. I think in in um, in life because they haven't been exposed to those environments where um, uh, they're, they're um, that, that freedom of being able to decide to do things as they go to to figure things out themselves as they go with the support so this safe uncertain environment again it's not a not a hands-off by any means you're not just to expose people to things and say oh well, there you go figure it out still that that's safe there's that says that safe element to it but I, I think um by by conforming that behavior where they can't say Uh, They say yes, but that's because they don't really know how to say no, or they know if they say no, they're going to be, um, you know, um, uh, it's going to be to their detriment anyway, they're going to be pushed to the outskirts of it. There's a really recent example of those types of things in an Australian football organisation here. Uh, where they, where they, this these elite organisation went on this camp, and these these players were conformed to do things that they just didn't want to do. They said no, and they were they were pushed into all what they referred to in these media releases being brainwashed into doing these things, which have had long last. This was four years ago, and still are having long lasting issues with them with them now because they couldn't say no to these things because it was the environment was set up that if they did, they would clearly be um, um, ostracised. Uh, and I mean, geez. you you, you cringe to think that's in a professional organisation, you know, that has a lot of resource. How can that happen in that environment? Well, clearly, how can it happen in Olympic um, gymnastics? How can it happen in UK equestrian? How can it happen in Australian football? Well, it does. Um, And and that's that's why we need to be almost, I think, a little bit bullish about pushing against some of these things um, at, at risk of ruffling feathers. But it's, I think... There's serious long-term health effects associated with some of these practices. Which, if we don't take them seriously, um, then um, yeah, then, then then athletes and coaches and organisations are, are running head first, I think into a really difficult, um, uh, really really complex issue.
1: Yeah, and I and I think although although equestrian sports is the only one at the moment with that social licence um, threat, I, and I completely agree with it. There's also a bit of me that. Thinks it's interesting that people feel more comfortable being outraged about horses than they are about children which i find yeah. fascinating i'm going it's and it's not and that i think it's really important and i've said this in in many places it's really important not to either witch hunt individuals or other yeah. the problem it's systemic it's society it's across the whole exactly. thing and it yeah. needs to be recognized as such and it's not intentional most individuals do not intend but they're still part of the society, the structures and the constraints that are holding that where it is. And, and yeah. I know, well, I'm I'm guess I'm pretty sure both you mm. and I and, and many other people in this space are trying to 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 we're going we recognize this, we need to push into a different place. And and here yeah. are some ideas about how that might work. It's that, not that that's... you lose the sport or you kids don't get off the sofa till they're 18. It's there, is, there are other ways of being and, and understanding and unpicking some of the things that sit behind why we're stuck and maybe not aware that we're stuck in these, in these ways of thinking and doing is really important. I'm mindful actually of, um, I think it's our friend uh, Marco Sullivan who says, as many as possible, as long as possible, in as good an environment as possible.
0: Yeah, and that, that, that to me again is just a wonderful aspiration. You know, there's nothing in that that prescribes what, what that should look like. There's nothing in that that that, that uh, conforms some behavioural standard. Um, it, it to me that, that those kinds of statements harness the experiential knowledge of practitioners and athletes, but do so in a really ethical, empirical way. Um, that that that's a, an aspiration that I think we should we should all all be pushing towards. Again. Like I, people argue, oh, well, yeah, it's all well and good to, to establish relationships with, with players, but we still have to win games. Well, what's, what's not to admire about wanting to establish a genuine relationship with people or with, the, with horses that we work with? Or like what, what's not to push towards that? What, what, why? Name me one good reason why establishing a, wanting to establish a really profound relationship with people or, or non, non-human um, animals. Why is that a bad thing, you know, to go back to Mark's point? Why is it not a good thing to want to foster opportunities for as many as possible, for as long as possible? What's not to, uh, uh, to, to admire and aspire towards wanting to have a, a, a really healthy environment uh, for, for, for as long as possible and for as many? What's what's not to admire about those things? Um, and to me, the, the only real tension and the only real kickback from these things comes from um, the... Um, giving up on control i think that giving up on like i'm in control i'm the coach i'm the the, the gatekeeper to this information well then straight away there's there's, there's another issue there to deal with than, than than the other things i think
1: and we come neatly back to embracing uncertainty and living yeah. with moving yeah. leading out with yeah. with each other yeah amazing Absolutely. thank you so much I've run
2: out.
0: No, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Time flies; it does fly. But uh, hopefully, people can can enjoy bits and pieces of that and pick up threads as they go. So, uh, but it's always a pleasure to jump on and and, and talk uh, talk with you about these concepts. Um, they're always fascinating conversations. It's just a good thing we've recorded this one, I guess.
1: Yes, I know. I know. I am. We've had so many great conversations that haven't been recorded. <laughs> that I always feel I record them as much so I can listen back to them. But um, I, I, I also, I do genuinely think it's really interesting, and I know Stu finds it fascinating that when we sort of play back and forwards, thinking about relationships with people or with children, with each other, with the environment, with animals, as we switch that lens, it allows us to maybe get a clarity or different perspectives as well and realise that there's, there's huge commonality, but also it helps us maybe see outside of what we've just become used to and blind to within a certain environment.
0: I, I, uh, these days I'm really intrigued um, by, to pick up that point by the notion of commoning by finding in common with people. I think we, you know, in in high-performance coaching groups, but in society generally, we aspire towards conformity, I think, or in educational institutions, we aspire towards conformity. That's sterile. Like, it doesn't open up anything. It just creates everything the same. We're not born, right, with things in common with people, right? You you and I don't have, you and I didn't start life as having things in common. Our friendship over time has been forged in an ongoing aspiration to find in common with our experiences, or the intransitive verb of that process is commoning. To me, that's what is sustainable. That's what holds open opportunities. Neither of us could have preempted where we were going to be now two hours ago, right? Like where where the conversation has gone has been through this it's not even a backwards and forwards, so to speak. It's more of this, just this emergent tangle of experiences that you have shared. They're richly varied. My experiences are richly varied. It's not one is you haven't interrogated me or I interrogated you. It's just been this emergent um, correspondence that's been forged in this ongoing aspiration to share our experiences. Now in doing that and sharing them and joining them together, We've opened up paths that we can continually travel. Paths that we can only travel as we're travelling them. Things that we can't um, have preempted prior to. Now, that's a really that's what to me a good conversation is. What what if we took that as our starting point for life? You know, like what 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 if that was what life is really all about? It's not about conforming to socio cultural standards. It's not about conforming to, oh, as an academic, this is what you got to look like. This is what you got to sound like. Or as an athlete, this is what you got to do. As a coach, this is what you got to do. As a chef, this is what you got to do. What if instead we just viewed life as an ongoing process, an ongoing aspiration of finding in common with people that we encounter along the way? How much richer and how much more inclusive and how much more collaborative? would life be you would instantly you would instantly start to break away stereotypes you would start to break away um uh minority groups why well Share your rich experiences with, I don't know what it's like to uh, be in a wheelchair all day, every day. Share with me your experiences. I'll try to join as best I can in with that. And as I join in, I'll, 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 I'll try to find ways to, to share my experiences, which opens up paths for both of us to continually um, uh, uh, travel together. If you say to me, you know what, I'm actually right-handed and the uh, the, the door for the, um, uh, um, the bathroom that I go into is on the other, like the handle is on the other side. It's really hard for me to reach over because I don't have access. My, my left arm doesn't work that very well from an accident I had years ago. I'd straight away go, oh my, geez, I never even thought about that. So all of a sudden, I'm going to start to attend to features of an environment that I never would have because you've shared a varied experience with me and I've aspired to find in common with you. And through that, I'm going to be more attentive to things which are going to hold open more spaces for you to continue to thrive, which inadvertently you thriving helps me thrive. And so we're together finding in common to carry our lives on. To me, uh, as I said from the start, there's nothing more, I'm yet to encounter anything more that feels more comfortable to me about what life is all about. And for, from that perspective, yeah. from, for me, I, I think life is all about, it should be all about a constant aspiration to find in common with others. And what that compels us to do is it compels us to be genuinely curious, it compels us to be genuinely careful, and it compels us to be genuinely hopeful. Curious yeah. in that I want to get to know you better and your experiences better. And to do that, I'm not just going to interrogate you. I'm going to share with you my experiences in a responsible way as you share yours to mine. And I'm going to be careful with how I link in those experiences that you have sustained, not to judge, not to um, uh, place mine at a higher level or yours at a higher level. I'm going to be very careful about And I'm also going to be very hopeful in that what I share with you and what you share with me is going to carry our correspondence on well into the future, beyond what any of us could have imagined. We might end this conversation and we might not talk for another couple of weeks, but when we pick up the conversation, when I email you again, the conversation's off and going again. It's suspended in this ongoing hope. Um, to And to me, they're the kind of three re, real key important parts of aspiring to find in common is that we got to be curious, careful and hopeful to, uh, uh, to, to, to others that we encounter along the way, such that in doing that, we can find in common, um, and so that diversity is to be thrived upon, not to push people away, but to bring people together, uh, which opens up new paths none of us could have travelled prior to. Oh,
1: absolutely. Amen to that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, with, with everything. I'm not, what a much more comfortable way, I mean, it's probably the wrong word, but it, it's, it, it, it's so... Um, liberating I think oh like
0: it again it kind of at a weird um cliched level it's just a, a human it's, it's appreciating that we're, we're we're all humans or it's appreciating that that that's a um you know I, I'm, I'm undertaking a relation like I'm, I'm entering into a relation with another person or another creature it's not to have some superiority over the fact that oh you've done this you've got this you, you you're this person so you must be a better person than me um, or there's not geez I can't learn anything from you I'm the educator I'm the one in control of these situations no it's 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 not that at all it's genuinely um, wanting to hear and attend to people's stories um, as as we cast ours forward and they join in with ours uh, and from my experience um and what I've described there is nothing groundbreaking it's just where genuine relationships are forged we have if anyone is listening to this has a relationship with a partner a, a dog a cat their child a parent a sibling that's what it is think about it in those terms that's exactly your partner comes home, you ask them how their day was. Why? Because you're genuinely curious. They come home and they say, oh, I haven't had a good day because this, this and this. So you're careful towards what their their experiences of that day have, have carried on with. You keep that conversation going. Why? Because you're hopeful of that relationship being sustained well into the future. Um, that, that's what a good, good um, aspiration for me, at least, a good aspiration of finding in common, a good conversation is all about.
1: And I, yeah, and I think animals do that really well because uh, certainly sociable yeah. animals. So horses yeah. and dogs are always finding in common with us. And that is why we, we have those incredible relationships with them. I mean, I know dogs probably domesticated us and we've been living with horses yeah. for so long, but they, as sociable beings, they that is what they do with each other. yeah, uh, And that is what they do with us. So they are always trying to meet us in that place.
2: Yeah.
0: absolutely and i guess on that perspective what's not to think i I spoke before about uh, human becoming yeah everyone you meet is always on their way to becoming something else but every horse you interact with is is horsing it's (laughs) on its way to becoming something else as well you know like that's that's, i don't need to worry about that's a horse like it's just it's objectified from that perspective but if we understand these things as as creatures with lives and deaths, aspirations yeah. that are attentive to things um, that are on their way to, to becoming something else.
1: The old, old non-anthropomorphizing was yeah. still human-centric and what it did was it took away any kind of meaning, sentience, emotion, like you say, it, it removed from animals their Um, and whilst their lived experience and the fact that they have lives that are meaningful to them, they make decisions, you know, non, non domesticated animals are fully autonomous, you know, things matter to them. They feel, they, you know, and, and we, we did both. We did them two disservices in that. Um,
0: It's, it's, it's absolutely um, uh, on 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 point, I think from from the perspective of you know we have to stop. I think at least um, overlaying human centric exploitable objective notions on creatures and on, on and on the environment and and um, I, I feel I often feel uncomfortable by saying things like let things show you as in like I already had power over stopping you from doing it in the first place, but for lack of a better way of saying it, we, we have to let things show us what is important to them. Um, even a plant, I have to let a plant show me what's important to it um, because I can't, I can't verbally communicate with it, but I can communicate with it. If I'm responsible to it, it's going to show me things, show me things it likes, show me things it doesn't like. So if I'm a responsible companion to that plant, well, I'm going to foster opportunities for it to keep growing. Um, And for it to keep growing, it might have a really profound impact on me. It might lead to a really enjoyable way of living. Why? Because I want to live in an environment where there's lots of plants. Um, So, of course, the plant thriving is helping my thriving, uh, which inadvertently is leading to the... There's a a really wonderful example of this by uh, Tom Van Duren, and he talks about... um, multi-species entanglements in his book um uh, on on um, on extinction and it's fascinating he, he talks about um uh, in in certain villages in india cows are obviously a really important part of their ecosystem but because of droughts and economic crisis they're really struggling to get feed uh, for for these uh, for the cows so to keep the cows working for them they give them a lot of diclofenac which is like a, a um, pain medication anti-inflammatory um and what that does is it keeps the cows going, keeps them going, keeps them ploughing, keeps them as a, as a resource for that particular community. Now, when they die, vultures come and eat um, the, uh, the, the, the carcasses, but what, and, and they, vultures for those people that don't know are, are wonderful creatures for the ecosystem because they um, uh, prevent bacteria from being released into waterways and into soil and, and all of these things. Um, But vultures can't eat the diclofenac, and so it makes them sick and it kills them. So what then happens is the carcass decays, enters into the waterways and affects the humans. Um, It it infects the the, the villages um, so they can't make um, uh, as as, as much of a livelihood off of the uh, produce that they grow or the waterways that they drink from. Um, So as you can see, there's this kind of entanglement in there that each of us need the species that we live with To continually thrive to keep open opportunities for us all to carry on the vultures need the cows to not ingest diclofenac well the humans need the cows to ingest diclofenac but by doing that they're hindering themselves at a different time scale so the 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 point in this is that when we try to impose things on top of species to just further us we perhaps aren't perceiving the entanglement of all these other things that are, um, are holding open, or that all these other things that we hold open spaces for um, are, are, are along the way. Point being, we can still do things for our gratification, right? Like I can still have plants in my apartment for, for, for my gratification. So long as I, I think I'm responsible to how that plant is in this particular environment. So to go back to that story, obviously there are alternate ways which these villagers are starting to explore to prevent feeding the cows this um, pain medication to inadvertently encourage the vultures to 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 still be an integral part of their their um, their ecosystem. So again, though, the point being things that we think aren't going to have drastic implications can often yield the most drastic that we can't perceive
1: yeah yeah there's unintended consequences and that's so much a part of kind of where we are at the moment isn't it in time
2: absolutely which absolutely
1: which, which certainly is uh, um yeah the, the, a, a, a big topic from <laughs> yeah. right i'm gonna let you go and i'm gonna go get some breakfast before i feed the animals uh it's been wonderful to chat to you as always thank you so much I'm really looking forward to catching up again and uh, I still need to I still want to be able to explore just um some of the the stuff around that uh uh I don't know how you describe it but um both again with the horses but uh, and certainly with my work with my old search dog that that how our interaction with the world as well as our action capabilities are changed through these really tight relationships um, and yeah. incredibly fascinating but that's for another, uh, another conversation
0: <laughs> definitely yeah we'll save the good stuff for another day
1: brilliant thank you so much carl and um congratulations to you and chloe you must thank, say. You congratulations. Oh,
0: thank you thank you very much yeah very exciting times yeah again and thank thanks for having um having uh having me on and um as I said hopefully hopefully some people enjoyed the uh, the listening and have made it this far <laughs>
1: <laughs> I hope so I will leave it as one so um hopefully they've yeah. they've enjoyed the conversation and um, I certainly have so thank you so much Carl and um and I'm sure I'll catch up with you shortly
0: <laughs> sounds good thanks Marianne